Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Federal Case, Namde Azikiwe and Obafemi Awolowo. It's an annoying though justifiable habit of philosophers that they will ask you to define your terms and then demand that you go on to clarify the terms used in the definition. So if a philosopher asked you what democracy is, and you replied that it is a political system where everyone gets an equal say in decision-making, you would perhaps expect to be pressed on what exactly you understand by the words political, system, equal, and decision. The philosopher might surprise you, though, and ask instead what you mean by the word everyone. It might have seemed obvious to you that the point of democracy is that each individual person gets a say. But in Obafemi Awolowo's 1960 autobiography, we find a subtly but crucially different idea. Democracy means that no individual or group dominates over the others. You can see why this might be a good move. Where political power is apportioned equally by head, it's easy for a majority to run roughshod over the interests of a minority. This problem is typically called the tyranny of the majority. In places like the United States, or even the location of our last episode, Cuba, worrying about the tyranny of the majority generally leads us to the worry of how black people escape domination as a racial minority. But of course, other kinds of group identity could be at stake. There may be worries about domination based on the presence in a single country of different religions, languages, ethnicities, and so on. This is what Awolo had in mind. He was a member of the Yoruba people, distinguished by language, culture, and religion from other peoples of the diverse country that is Nigeria. In his political tract, Thoughts on Nigerian Constitution, Awolowo reckons that as he is writing in the 1960s, the Yoruba number about 13 million, the Hausa Fulani about the same, and the third large group, the Igbo, about 8 million. Then there are a number of other smaller groups whose views also need to be represented. Notice that he finds no group that can just be called Nigerian. Already in his 1949 book, Path to Nigerian Freedom, Awolowo had written, Nigeria is not a nation, it is a mere geographical expression. There are no Nigerians in the same sense as there are English, Welsh, or French. The word Nigerian is merely a distinctive appellation to distinguish those who live within the boundaries of Nigeria from those who do not. It was a typical feature of colonialism in Africa that this sort of diversity was exploited and not respected. Taking the case of Nigeria, The British, on the one hand, played groups off against one another using the tried-and-true method of divide and rule. On the other hand, they imposed uniform policies on all groups, regardless of whether these policies were appropriate. For instance, local chiefs were used as proxies in a system called indirect rule. This made some sense in the north, where the Fulani emirs were a good fit for the structure the British had in mind, but less so in other parts of Nigeria, where traditional political structures did not include the investment of a single figure with so much power. A one-size-fit-all approach went along with the British desire to make Nigeria into a single, unified economy. Long before he served as Nigeria's first and also last prime minister, Abubakar Tafawa Balewa, who hailed from the north of the country, spoke of the British idea as hopeless because the various peoples were different in every way, including religion, custom, language, and aspirations. Despite British efforts to make this conglomeration work beginning in 1914, 
with the amalgamation of the southern and northern Nigeria protectorates, Balewa proclaimed in 1952, We in the North take it that Nigeria's unity is only a British intention for the country they created. An intention, not a reality. Indeed, it took less than a decade for civil war to break out after Nigeria achieved independence in 1960. The year 1967 saw the declaration of a separate Igbo-dominated state in Biafra, triggering a war that led to a humanitarian catastrophe. It was exactly this sort of outcome that Awolowo wanted to avoid by having a democracy of groups, not people. He blamed the failure of the initial independent Nigerian state in part on an imbalance of power in the federal system. But other leaders had other ideas about the best form of political state, or at least the best form of state for Nigeria. Diametrically opposed to Awolowo philosophically, and his main rival politically, was Namde Azikiwe, who eventually became the first president of Nigeria. He was known affectionately by his nickname, Zeke, just as Awolowo was called Awo. But three-letter nicknames are about all they had in common, apart from the fact that both were also Christians. Azikiwe was of the Igbo people and from the east of the country, whereas Awolowo was Yoruba, as already mentioned, and from the west. Awolowo wanted to make a federal case out of Nigeria by spreading power among the various peoples and ensuring that no one group could override the wishes of the others. Azikiwe had the opposite idea. He was for a centralized, unified state. There was a telling exchange on this topic between Azikiwe and a third leading politician of Nigeria in the Age of Independence, Ahmadu Bello. If that name sounds familiar, it should. Ahmadu Bello was the great-grandson of Muhammad Bello, and thus the great-great-grandson of Uthman Banfodio, founder of the Sokoto Caliphate, which we covered back all the way in episode 13. Once Azikiwe said to Bello that the two sides should forget their differences, and Bello replied, no, let us understand our differences. I am a Muslim and Northerner. You are a Christian and Easterner. By understanding our differences, we can build unity in our country. This is not the only moment of Azikiwe's career to recall topics we've covered in past episodes. To the contrary, his own autobiography, entitled My Odyssey, is for long stretches like a refresher course on the history of Africana philosophy. He was born in 1904 in a grass hut, with traditional soothsayers present, and was sent to Lagos as a youngster after he was bitten by a dog, which was blamed on malevolent witchcraft. You might remember us discussing African witchcraft and magic in episode 21, and as we'll see, Azikiwe would have things to say about it as an adult. He traveled to the United States in search of education and wound up at, of all places, Howard University, where he studied philosophy with Alain Locke and was also influenced by Kelly Miller. Azikiwe studied with Locke just a few years after the publication of The New Negro, and thus he benefited from Locke's mentorship both through exposure to the general intellectual ferment of the Harlem Renaissance, as well as through training in the specific methods of philosophy. He had begun to think of himself as an intellectual revolutionary, and took it as his task to formulate a philosophy that could aid in the transformation and development of Africa. Locke's guidance in constructive and systematic thinking was crucial to him in this regard. Looking back on his own experience with Locke and on the intellectual impact of the Harlem Renaissance on Africa more generally, Azikiwe mirrored Senghor in viewing that cultural outpouring in the United States as a major stimulus in Africa's advance. As he put it, the idea of a new Negro evolved into the crusade for a new Africa. For financial reasons, Azikiwe 
finished his BA at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania rather than at Howard. One of his fellow students at Lincoln was William Fontaine, who, as we noted in episode 80, went on to become the first black professional philosopher employed at an Ivy League institution. After attaining the BA, Azikiwe got an MA at Lincoln, studying religion and philosophy and writing a thesis in which he critically evaluated polygamy. He took courses at Columbia University and the University of Pennsylvania, achieving a second master's at the latter institution. With these credentials, he began lecturing at Lincoln on African history and political science, but he became homesick and ultimately decided that the life of an academic in the United States would not satisfy his desire to bring about a new Africa. So he left, going first to what is now Ghana, but was then still the Gold Coast. He became editor of a newspaper called the African Morning Post, and attained much success in this position before going through the ordeal of a trial for sedition. This came about because of the publication of an article by Isaac Wallace Johnson called Has the African a God? Wallace Johnson, who was from Sierra Leone, was a fascinating figure in his own right, a leftist activist who would later move to London and create the International African Service Bureau, a pan-Africanist political organization alongside C.L.R. James, George Padmore, Amy Ashwood Garvey, and others. Wallace Johnson's article in the African Morning Post harshly attacked colonialism and the hypocrisy of European Christianity. It does not by itself offer us insight into Ezekiel's views, as he initially opposed its publication before being overruled by the newspaper's owner. Still, in the wake of an initial conviction, he framed the matter as part of a broader struggle against oppression, saying, the fight for liberty has just begun in Africa. Eventually acquitted, Azikiwe decided to finally return to Nigeria, where he became an even more prominent editor and proprietor of newspapers, or in his own words, a fully-fledged nationalist and militant journalist. His leadership through journalism in West Africa during this time can be compared to antecedents like T. Thomas Fortune and Marcus Garvey in the United States. There can be no doubt that Garvey in particular was an important figure for Azikiwe. He expressed this quite clearly in a letter he wrote to a role model of his, Herbert Macaulay, another fascinating figure in his own right. Descended from Yoruba forebears who were Sierra Leone recaptives, Macaulay founded Nigeria's first political party, the Nigerian National Democratic Party, in 1923. He was also a prominent newspaper man, which is why Ezekiwe, while still in the United States, wrote to Macaulay asking to be employed either by his newspaper, the Lagos Daily News, or by the NNDP. The letter is valuable for its attempt to sum up Azikiwe's philosophy as he had developed it thus far. He confessed that he adored Garveyism, even as he admitted that it was rather utopian. Azikiwe prized Garveyism especially for its values of race pride, race consciousness, nationalism, and economic stability. We can be sure that Garvey's paper, The Negro World, was on his mind as he set up a number of periodicals, the most important being the West African Pilot. Returning to Nigeria from the Gold Coast also enabled Azikiwe to enter politics. He joined the Nigerian Youth Movement, a party that managed to challenge the dominance of the NNDP. Later, after he left the Nigerian Youth Movement over what he saw as a problem of ethnic rivalry, he joined forces with Macaulay to create the NCNC. This acronym originally stood for National Council for Nigeria and the Cameroons, as it then included within its scope the colonies known as the British Cameroons, but by 1962, it came to mean National Council for Nigerian Citizens. Like other nationalists, including Awolowo, Azikiwe worked for independence from the British, 
complaining about the autocratic institutions that had been installed under colonialism and remarking, we demand the right to be free to make mistakes and profit from our experiences. This freedom would allow for the full expression of the Nigerian's personality, phrasing that recalls wording used by Edward Blyden. At first, the NCNC accepted the idea of a federal system with power being granted to ethnic and regional groups. But by 1951, Azikiwe and his allies started to argue that their opponents were using federalism as a cloak for dismembering Nigeria. The diversity of Nigeria was, according to this new position, a problem to be overcome. Azikiwe had no time for the notion that his country was a fictional vestige of the colonial era. What history has joined together, he proclaimed, let no man put asunder. In 1958, he argued that even if Nigeria had once been a mere geographical expression, as Awolu claimed, it was now an historical expression. The North and the South are one, whether we wish it or not. The forces of history have made it so. We have a common destiny, so too have the East and the West. Azikiwe's most important book from a philosophical perspective was Renaissance Africa, written while he was still in the Gold Coast and published in 1937, not long before his return to Nigeria. Towards the beginning, he modestly allows, I have never claimed to be a new messiah, but adds, it is possible that I may be one of the apostles of the new Africa. Indeed, the work rings throughout with the cadences of Azikiwe's declamatory style, almost prophetic in tone, which can also be found in his recorded speeches. Here's an example chosen more or less at random to give you a sense of it. Come now, renaissant African, believe in yourself. Believe that you have the talent, but it is latent. Believe and it shall be done unto you. Africa has produced geniuses in the past. Africa is producing geniuses today. And Africa can and will produce geniuses tomorrow. Very different in tone is My Odyssey, which is full of quotidian detail and political infighting. From this book, one gets the sense that Azikiwe has never forgotten a kind turn. He even reprints dinner invitations he received more than a decade ago, and that he has certainly never forgotten a grudge. He takes time to name and shame all 20 politicians who the NCNC helped way back in a 1951 election, only to see them defect to support Awolowo. Still, Renaissance Africa and the autobiography have in common the same underlying ideas, which involve both a negative critique of African society as Azikiwe found it, and a positive proposal for how to improve matters. The negative critique brings us back to the topic of witchcraft, which is one of the aspects of traditional African society that Azikiwe finds troubling. Belief in magic and witchcraft, he argues, has been disastrous for African societies. It has no basis in empirical proof, which means it is either superstitious or super-scientific, as he puts it. In his autobiography, he at least gives traditional African forms of thought credit for being practical in the sense that people did not waste time on logic and frivolous arguments. Here we may notice an echo of the pragmatism he learned at Howard. In Renaissance Africa, though, he complains that, up till the contact of the African with the West, African philosophy has been based on materialism. The concept of food, shelter, and clothing has made Africans materially deterministic, that in certain vital respects, they have been underdeveloped from the neck. Hence the title of the work. Africa needs to be reborn on the basis of new principles that are suitable to the modern age and tested by the unyielding standards of scientific rationality. And that brings us to the positive side of Azikiwe's analysis, which forms the core of the philosophy that came to be called Zikism. 
It has five fundamental principles introduced at the beginning of Renaissance Africa. Spiritual balance, social regeneration, economic determinism, mental emancipation, and political resurgence. Particularly worth flagging here are the third and fourth items on the list. As the name suggests, economic determinism is an idea inspired by Marxism and alludes to Azikiwe's attraction to socialism. He argues that African society is essentially socialistic, an idea that is developed more fully by contemporary African politician philosopher Kwame Nkrumah, as we'll see in the next episode. But Azikiwe is at best a selective user of Marxism. His stress is not so much on class revolution as intellectual development, which he thinks is fundamental to social development. An interesting passage on this point in his autobiography describes a debate he had with Wallace Johnson, who was a more straightforward socialist. Wallace Johnson believed that Azikiwe's high-minded educational approach to uplift in Africa would take centuries, whereas a purely materialist solution would have its effect in only decades. Azikiwe explains more about the kind of education he has in mind under the fourth principle, mental emancipation. This part of his plan would mean undoing the inferiority complex that besets Africans. Feelings of inferiority have meant that they could only imitate Western models instead of emulating them by rationally and selectively adopting the best of the West for use in Nigeria and across the continent. Dispelling misconceptions about African inferiority means, first and foremost, teaching about the glories of the African past, as Azikiwe had done himself back in Lincoln University in the States. But it could also mean something as simple as printing photos of black people instead of letting Africans see only white Europeans in the pages of their newspapers. Such changes will help Africans to gain the self-respect they need to engage in successful economic activity and self-governance. And that governance should, of course, be unified. The program of five principles should allow Nigerians to gather together and strive towards that common destiny we just saw him mentioning. Again, traditional culture could in some ways be a hindrance here, in particular as a result of the problem of ethnic division. Azikiwe writes, I knew that the Ga and the other tribes of the Gold Coast had a common kinship with the Ashanti or Hausa or Daomi or Benin peoples. Thus I thought that for one of these cross-cousins to arrogate to himself an idea of superiority or inferiority was preposterous. Thus I pleaded for spiritual balance, which would lead to social regeneration. Renaissance Africans must, therefore, regard all Africans as blood brothers and sisters. In place of the partiality and division caused by group feeling, Africans should come to embrace a patriotism which knows no clan or tribe. Again, Garvey is a relevant part of the background here. Azikiwe speaks of his admiration for the UNIA slogan, One God, One Aim, One Destiny, noting that it is universal in its application. Clearly, he's thinking beyond the unity of Nigeria here. He invokes nothing less than the ideal of universal brotherhood as the noblest doctrine in the world, and he applies it to peoples found across Africa. Whatsoever ye would that a ga do unto a ga, do ye likewise to the African, be he Zulu, Bubi, or Kru. This is the greatest law of all. But while someone like Nkrumah would be in agreement with everything we've just seen Azigiwe saying, it was not at all to the liking of Obafemi Awolo. You might put this down to the fact that Azikiwe had been abroad and acquired a more cosmopolitan outlook, much as happened with African-American thinkers whose views were changed by international travel, like James Baldwin and Malcolm X. 
But Awolowo went to the UK to study law in 1944, and this did not prevent him from becoming a champion of localism in Nigerian politics. Like Azikiwe, he had grown up in the sort of cultural milieu familiar to us from our episodes on pre-colonial African philosophy. His family was mixed Christian and pagan, as his father was a devout Christian while his mother's mother worshipped a river god and invited Ifa priests to the family home. Also like Azikiwe, Awolowo comments negatively on traditional beliefs, though he admitted to vacillating in his Christian faith as he got older. Even back when he considered himself to be steadfast, he sometimes held highly controversial views about religion. His own journalistic career involved writing an article denying that God answers our prayers, with quotations from Paul's epistles mustered in support of this claim. Just as Zeke was the leading figure in the NCNC, Awo was the main man in a series of organizations. First was the Nigerian Youth Movement, the same organization that Ezekiwe had left, taking most of the Igbo members with him. Second, the Ebe Omo Ododua, or Society of the Descendants of Ododua, that is, of the Yoruba. As the leading figure of a third organization, his political party, the Action Group, Awolowo drew on his Yoruba power base to become premier of the western region of Nigeria in 1954. He was true to his political theory even when it came to the local level, as he built on existing power structures rather than subordinating them to a central authority. For example, he did not seek to depose the local chiefs of towns in Yoruba land, but deftly integrated them into his own political movement. Awolowo's career had a major setback when tensions with his successor as Western Premier, Samuel Akintola, led to a politically motivated trial. Awolowo was put in prison in 1963, having been convicted of treason and plotting to overthrow the government, then released in 1966. He was able to return to politics and remains a much-admired figure in Nigerian history, at least by some. His birthday is celebrated each year posthumously, and he is called the Great Sage. Befitting that title, he is recognized to have had his own philosophy, which inevitably is called Awoism. It is set out in such documents as the aforementioned Thoughts on Nigerian Constitution, which presents a stark choice between a unitary and a federal government. He defines federalism as follows, Supreme legislative authority is shared between the central government and the regional governments. Obviously, in a unitary government, there is no such sharing, and most or all power resides at the center. Equally obviously, Awolowo is going to argue for federalism in the case of Nigeria. But the hallmark of Awolowo's thought is arguably not federalism, but contextualism. By this, we mean that, in his view, the right political system for one time and place may be radically different from that appropriate in another context. It's an approach he took within Nigeria, as when he argued that Azikiwe was wrong to argue for abolishing the political institution of local chiefs. He wrote, Whilst such a proposition might be acceptable to his followers, in and from the eastern region where the British had experimented with varying degrees of success and failure with warrant chiefs, it would not do for the western provinces and the northern provinces, where traditional chieftainships had been established from time immemorial. Thus, to decide what solution is right for Nigeria as a whole, Awolowo takes what he calls a completely objective and scientific approach, which takes the form of a quick survey of the world's nations and their success or failure with unitary and federal constitutions. From this, he draws the lesson that a country of one people who share a language can have a unitary government, otherwise federalism is required. Given the extreme diversity of Nigeria, 
different peoples and regions should be allowed to pursue their prosperity within a relatively loose confederation overseen at the national level. To those who say that too many cooks spoil the broth, Awolowo replies, not if they are making separate pots. This doctrine set Awolowo on a collision course with Azikiwe, his great rival in the years around Nigeria's successful bid for independence. Awolowo's autobiography makes fun of Azikiwe's intellectual pretensions, calls him a consummate propagandist and an Igbo jingoist, and even compares him to Hitler. From his point of view, when Azikiwe and his NCNC indulged in lofty talk of pan-Nigerian or pan-African unity, this was just a smokescreen for their true pro-Ibo agenda. For instance, Azikiwe would admit the need for some degree of federalism, at least as a stepping stone towards a fully unitary government, but then he would engineer things so that the Ibo had an unfair advantage within the federal structure. More often than not, Awolowo complains, there is a wide gap between what he believes and what he preaches, and between what he preaches and what he practices. For Awolowo, federalism was no transitional stage, but the best way to arrange Nigerian political life. Ideally, he would have liked to see a federal structure where each ethnic or language group had its own devolved government, though he saw that this was probably impractical because some of the groups were simply too small to be viable. As we can see from that caveat, Awolowo's federalism and localism inevitably faced a problem. How small should the units of political power be allowed to get? You might think that the answer could just be as small as people want. But Awolowo was not immune to the attractions of unified purpose. He certainly did not want Nigeria to break apart into smaller countries defined by ethnic group, because he realized it could exert more economic and geopolitical influence as a single country with a large population. Lower down in the structural hierarchy, he strove mightily for Yoruba unity and saw factionalism within this group as a major problem. In Path to Nigerian Freedom, he wrote that federalism requires the principle of ethnic affinity and the restoration or innovation of popular control over the institution of chieftaincy. That pan-tribal unity was a necessary condition for political advance. The barrier of tribalism and clannishness within each ethnic unit must be totally destroyed. This may look inconsistent. Why have different strokes for different folks within Nigeria, but not within the Yoruba? But remember his criterion for unitary as opposed to federalist constitution. You should go for the unitary option when you are dealing with a single people and language group. This would give him a principled reason for drawing a distinction between the two levels. Nigeria should have federalism, because it is so diverse, whereas the Yoruba should have centralized authority because they are one people. Azikiwe could use a similar strategy to respond to Awolowo's accusations that he was just an Igbo jingoist dressed up in the costume of a pan-Africanist. At a practical and rhetorical level, there was evidently a tension between the NCNC's nationwide agenda of unification and their local power base in the Igbo people. But as we've seen, for Azikiwe, Unification happens in steps. The goal is to become one, but not all at once. First, you bring together the Igbo people towards a common purpose at the level of tribe. Then you unite the Igbo with the Yoruba, the Hausa, and all the others at the level of the Nigerian nation. Finally, Nigeria should make common cause with the rest of the African continent. Azikiwe spells out exactly this sequence in his autobiography, writing that he sees himself as a son of humanity and citizen of the world who wants all tribalism to be transcended, but also recognizes the need to establish Igbo solidarity first of all.
Thus, having adopted contrary political philosophies, Awo and Zeke found themselves with opposite political problems, and their solutions sometimes wound up meeting in the middle. Speaking of meetings, there's another leader and Pan-Africanist that Azikiwe met, someone with whom we've already compared him in this episode, Kwame Nkrumah, the first leader of independent Ghana. In his speech welcoming Nkrumah at the start of a 1959 visit, Azikiwe called him an outstanding pioneer in the fight for the freedom of a sister nation in West Africa. Takes one to know one, apparently, and it will take less than half an hour of your time to find out how Nkrumah earned such praise. Next time here on the history of Africana philosophy.